You're listening to Giro Vagando, the cycling podcast at the 2022 Giro d'Italia, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Here we are, Daniel, for the traditional cycling podcast rest day press conference. It just makes me wonder what sort of attitude to the press would you have if you were a rider? Probably terrible. Would you, would you be awful. eyes down in the press conference mumbling your answers? I think it's common if you are a journalist to naively think that you would be a brilliant interview. <laughs> You'd know exactly the bomb mode to use. You'd know exactly how to steer an interview. Um, would you, would you be avoiding the, the media on the finish line, ducking past? Would you skip the mix zone in the morning if you could? Um, do you know one thing that I often notice myself, I often observe, and this comes back to a few a couple of months ago, And I got, I got his nationality wrong at the time. The speed skater who published this manifesto, I probably got the sport wrong now. There was a, a, some chap at the Winter Olympics. Now, I think he was, was he, oh, he was Swedish, wasn't he? He was a speed skater. He was called, he was called Van der Poel. Van der Poel. Um, and he published his manifesto of how to become a champion speed skater. And he talked about media relations and he talked about using humor. And I think that's absolutely, that is the most underrated weapon there is for a, an athlete in their dealings with the media, just to diffuse tension, get them on your side straight away, sort of deflect any, any impending difficult question, question you don't want to answer. Primoz Roglic, as I said, I think back then is a great example. And he's learned this or he's integrated this into his in interview style. Interesting. I thought Simon Yates, from hearing the little snippet yesterday, he's obviously had a terrible day. No need to apologise there, was there? He said, sorry, lads. Sorry, chaps. Well, I don't I think mean, he said chaps. But. You know, he, he could have reacted in any number of ways there, but he reacted in a way that showed kind of, you know, good grace and, the, and um, you know, a sense of awareness, really, and, and, and self-confidence, um, the way he responded to that fan there. I thought anyway, Lionel, good. this is we? our press conference. Where are we? Well, we are in Abruzzo. And this has been our little rest day hideaway. It's sensational, isn't it? There's another fantastic pick from Freeboss oh, Tours. Freeborincini? Freeborincini cycling holidays. Um Well, it's a vineyard, isn't it? It's a winery. We, I told you we had a good run for the next few days of wineries. I must say the easiest, this is the easiest part of Italy. The central parts of it, central regions are the easiest ones in which to find good accommodation um, at reasonable prices. But so we're on a winery. It's called the. Uh, it's a Bulgarian name, Lionel. The Chavolic, I think that's how you pronounce it. Vini Chavolic, and they make Montepulciano da Bruzzo. And this family came to Italy, or their ancestors came to Italy 500 years ago. I was told today, and they've been here. I don't think they've been making wine ever since, but they certainly are now. Yes, yeah, a delightful spot. The views all around are fantastic. You can see the Corno Grande of the Gran Sasso d'Italia, the highest point of the Apennines, which is snow-capped still well, at the moment. Where the Giro went a few years ago, we were there, weren't we? We took a long Not time right to get down to the in the top, ski lift. Um, but they did go to the Gran Sasso d'Italia, yeah. And I'll just paint a little picture of where we are. We're in the garden here. We're sitting underneath uh, an awning of uh, bamboo, just 
well, the sun's gone in now, actually, and it feels a little bit like a storm may break, but it's been a roasting hot day for May in Italy. And if you hear any machinery in the background, that's the people working in the fields and the vineyards. A, a, a babbling noise. That's a, the jacuzzi the, that Lionel will be visiting later. Well, I didn't get You've time for the sauna. Jacuzzis. Twin jacuzzi, one each. Yeah. Mm. Uh, well, I think we should get to our questions which have been sent in from our listeners. So we will take the first question after this. Still gassing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Super Sapiens supports the cycling podcast and as everyone will know by now I've been wearing the Super Sapiens sensor on my arm and analyzing my blood glucose data on the Super Sapiens app but I'm not a sports physiologist I really don't know what I'm looking at and so we have asked Christina Scrocher who is a sports physiologist at the University of Verona and who also works for Super Sapiens to explain what I'm looking at when I open up the app because there are two key zones, the recovery zone and the performance zone. The key zones that appear on the app are basically divided by two different colors and these are blue and red. So blue is the recovery one and red is the perform one. Perform one is also called the glucose performance zone and it's quite individual for every person. And what we advise is to actually not use the default one, but to adapt it to individual needs. And these individual needs are connected to the type of sport, the type of activity I'm doing, the type of training I'm doing, uh, the type of fueling that I will be using, uh, because this can really vary to per- from a person to person. And as far as the recovery zone regards, basically this is kind of the optimal zone, as you will see the limited in the app from 70 to 140 milligrams per deciliter that will help you optimize your recovery. So all the hours outside of the performance itself. So let's say that the goal outside of the training, any kind of performance or racing event is to actually stay in this blue zone as much as possible in order to have a better recovery. To find out more about Super Sapiens, go to supersapiens.com. Now let's get to the questions our listeners have been sending in, Daniel. In this episode, we're also going to hear from our three audio diarists who have been sending in their thoughts about the Giro as it's been making its way from Hungary to, uh, well, approaching the centre of Italy now. We've been hearing from James Knox of Quickstep Alpha Vinyl, Pavel Sivakov of Ineos Grenadiers and Ben Zwiehoff of Bora Hansgrower. And we'll hear their dispatches um, telling the story of the opening week of the race throughout this episode. Hi there, this is Owen in Stirling, Scotland. Uh, I have a question for you. It's very simple. Uh, where does the name Blockhouse come from? Doesn't sound very Italian to me. Cheers. Thanks for the podcast. Really appreciate it. The name Blockhouse, the very evocative name Blockhouse Lionel, where does it come from? Well, it apparently comes from the name of a structure. A blockhouse in German is like a log house, not really a log cabin, it's a bit bigger than that, um, but it's a wooden structure. And there was a, a log house up there on the top of the Maela, 
where we were yesterday or actually the blockhouse itself is a bit higher than where we were yesterday and this was used by a, a military commander of Austrian origin who well he and his men or uh, his band of whatever they were what, what what's the sort of rank below military command I don't know mere Privates. Privates, I don't know. Um, they stationed themselves up there to sort of fend off a band, a local band of brigands. This was the mid-19th century. We talked about this period in Italian history yesterday, line of the unification of Italy. So we're talking about the years between about 1862, 1863 to 1867, apparently, this gentleman, this Austrian military commander was up there and over the years the structure was destroyed but the name blockhouse stuck or it was certainly retained to some extent however it was also revived and by the giro director vincenzo torriani in the 1960s he was very good at this kind of thing he would i mean often there are various toponyms that can be used particularly in mountains i mean for example um, you notice the Giro when it finishes places like Macunaga, they call the stage Monte Rosa. And the Monte Rosa is a huge mountain, you know, that towers way above Macunaga, but they call it the Monte Rosa. They also sometimes use the Marmolada for the Passo Fedaia. You know, it's a little bit more glamorous, a little bit sexier. And Torriani pulled out this name, Blockhouse. And because a couple of its early appearances in the Giro well, became synonymous with exploits by, for example, Eddie Merckx, it took on this sort of imposing air, this imposing kind of mystique, which I think well makes it a lot more memorable, don't you, Lionel? And it's certainly very, it's, it's unusual, isn't it? Very unusual. Well, it's unusual because it's not a, a typical Italian word, and that's what makes it stand out. From Leroy in Montreal, recent inductee into the world of cycling and now a cycling podcast superfan. Um, you guys have been a big, big part of my journey and um, really, really enjoy the podcast. Keep it up. And we miss Richard terribly, um, even though never met the man. Um, there's an attachment there that is, is hard to explain and it's brought to life by you guys every single day. <laughs> My question is, in many sports, um, there's a concept of uh, the top five or the, the three greatest. Um, so I'm asking you guys directly, Lionel first and Daniel, who would be in your top five all-time riders, GC, single day, domestique, you name it. Um, what would be on your list? Wishing you guys a wonderful rest of the uh, Giro and um, enjoy and keep up the great work. Thank you. Lionel, do you want to go first? You're smiling. Why are you smiling? No, no, I, I, I mean, I'm hoping um, you're prepared for this. Uh, well, my answer, I mean, all of my five riders are the people that I loved. What's the criteria? For well, them? what's your criteria? That my you've criteria, the, your top five riders of all time. Favourites. Favourites, I guess. I'm, I'm interpreting it as favourites. And I've gone for the childhood favourites, the people who um, I really identified with and sort of idolised when I was a child getting into cycling through watching it on Channel 4 in the UK, reading about it in the magazines. And yeah, for someone of my vintage, the names will be familiar, Sean Kelly, Robert Miller, Greg LeMond, Laurent Fignon, and then it's a toss-up between Lucho Herrera and Andy Hampston. And they're just the kind of the poster boys of the mid to late 80s. 
And um, at various times, I would have said as a sort of 12, 13-year-old, these are my favourite cyclists. Uh, I mean, it made the 1989 Tour de France interesting because I think they all rode it. And Le Monde and Fignon traded the yellow jersey all the way up to the Champs-Élysées. And I was wrestling with this question of who is my favourite rider? Who do I want to win? And on the final day, I wanted Le Monde to win. And then as soon as he did win, I felt absolutely crushed for Fignon and wished that he had won. So, I don't know, maybe my therapist would have something to say about this. Why have I chosen the five riders Your that I identified with? quite a lot of mentions on the oh, well, podcast maybe. these days. <laughs> Indeed, Daniel, yes. Um, maybe there's something in all maybe of I this. Maybe I can find a therapist to pick apart my fascination with Pavel Tonkov, because he's top of my list. <laughs> I think you should. <laughs> that I defies comprehension even for me. No, Pavel Tonkov is untouchable. He's, he's in... Pole position, as far in my affections, always has been, I guess, always will be. A Partly Giro from, winner from the impressionable from years. Yeah, from yeah. 1998. There's a... I've quoted Six, a line. Yeah, it was 1998. Sorry, I know you won the Giro in 1996. Yeah. Sorry, but ah. later we're going to get onto our favourite Giri. Um, yeah, I mean, I was 17 in 1998, and I used this line in my book about Jan Ulrich actually that uh, I took it from the Julian Barnes book Metroland it's an age sort of 16 17 where things seem seem to contain more everything's more vivid everything's more powerful and that was certainly the case with Tonkov I loved his riding style he was rock solid on the bike um, inscrutable um, unemotional and he was a great antidote to Pantani at the time. I actually wasn't that fond of Pantani in that particular Giro. Um, next one, Jan Ulrich himself. Again, same period, 1997 Tour de France. That was um, His ride to Andorra was one of the most striking I think I've ever seen. One of the most sort of sport redefining uh, at the time it seemed that way that I've ever seen. Uh, Thibaut Pino, I have to admit, he's in the shake-up for the pathos. Um, and I have to admit that Tadej Pogacar's in there. Wow. Yeah, and I, I, I guiltily admit that because it's someone I have to interview quite a lot. But I just love how dynamic he is on a bike. And I'm very much hooked by this story at the moment. To uh, Just very much intrigued to see how far he can go and how much he can redefine the next few years of professional cycling or define the next few years of professional cycling. And the last one, for what he represents as a human being, and I've got to know him relatively well over the years, is Christophe Basson, the French rider who in 1999 stood up to, among others, Lance Armstrong and was incredibly principled in an era when the whole sport of professional cycling seems to have lost its moral compass. The one, maybe the most impressive thing about Christophe, though, is not the moral stance that he took, but how magnanimous he is about people who didn't follow his ethical path and his understanding for them, his compassion for them, and his argument that he was simply very lucky in that um, he'd had an upbringing and he'd been surrounded by enough affection not to need the materialistic trappings or the the affirmation that would have come with victory for which at that time doping was was probably necessary it's a great question Leroy and it's interesting that we've both chosen people that we've actually watched but I suppose that's telling I mean I could have said you know Eddie Merckx um, Fausto Coppi, you know, all the great riders from the, the 50s, 60s and 70s. But, you know, they're really, they're kind of uh, two-dimensional images, still images for me. 
although I have seen footage of them riding, of course. But these these were the riders of the kind of Technicolor 1980s, the, the point at which I kind of fell in love with the sport, really. So uh, that's the reason for my uh, selection. Hey, this is Lawrence from Berlin speaking, friend of the podcast, of course. Um, I was wondering a bit of history, maybe, also for you guys. How do you feel about, you know, riders like Nibali, Valverde, Port, Gilbert, or retiring? You know, riders who kind of shaped a whole decade of racing. Are you feeling sentimental, like I do, for example, with, you know, riders you kind of watched for so many hours animating races? Or are you like, nah, there's new riders coming up, whatever. And then, since we're at the Giro, who's going to win the great jersey? Port or Valverde? Daniel, a question from Berlin there. What do you think? Uh, the... The phenomenon of riders retiring. I mean, it happens to everyone eventually. Even Alejandro Valverde has to hang up the wheels at some point. Do you find it quite jarring the first time you realise that you have followed a rider's career from start to finish, that your career as a journalist predated them turning professional and then you see them retire? I mean, that's happened to us quite a lot mm. now. It, it occurred to me again the other day that it will happen soon to me vis-a-vis um, -vis Vincenzo Nibali. I remember interviewing him as a neo-pro just after he'd signed his first pro contract with uh, Fasa Bortolo. And, yeah, I mean, I don't feel kind of maudlin or or particularly, it doesn't feel particularly poignant to me. There are riders who you're sad to see go because you have, I mean, from a purely selfish point of view, journalistically, you have a good relationship with. Um, others you're less sad to see exit stage yeah i mean I, i suppose when it gets to riders in their mid to late 30s or in valverde's case early 40s i'm quite keen to see people retire on their own terms rather than kind of you know slipping down and down and down and and, and having a sort of undignified exit from the sport i mean if somebody wants to carry on riding just for the pure love of it and you know do smaller races for a smaller team and make less of an impact you know that's equally fine it's uh, as long as i get a sense that it's the rider's decision to call it a day um and they're not just going on because it's all they know and it's all they can think of doing um the other part of the question was who will win the gray jersey in the giro richie port or alejandro valverde daniel neither of the above is going to be dominico or pozzo vivo there we are the gray jersey his, his apple crumble what, if you listen to the podcast last night what's the what's the criteria over 35 i guess really or is it is, i mean what's what's veteran these days because veteran is a lot older now than it used to be i mean bernardino retired at 32 at the peak of his power still really and now riders are winning grand tours at 32 or can, can be contenders at 32 the game has changed hasn't it they can also be contenders at 19 yeah indeed daniel and lionel this is steve friend of the podcast from montreal first of all i want to extend my sincere condolences to both of you and to thank you for keeping up the uh, cycling podcast amid what must be a very trying time uh i've really enjoyed the um Giro del Buffalo feature, which makes me sad and happy at the same time. Um, my question to you today is about breakaways, since we've been talking about um, people finding themselves intentionally or unintentionally in breakaways. Um, why does cycling have breakaways? They, they seem to be such a standard part of every race, and yet they, they defy logic. In no other sport do we spot an opponent 
an advantage only to at some point in the game or match attempt to take that advantage back sometimes even unsuccessfully uh, so what is a breakaway is it physics is it cultural um, appreciate your thoughts and and uh, thank you for for all your great work a question from montreal i mean it's like the trying to define what's the point of being alive really isn't it you know why does yeah, cycling are, have breakaways there I mean, are sort of answers to this question that as Stephen says in his question are to do with physics there are some to do with politics there are some to do with um well more phil- philosophical considerations i mean our friends line or our colleagues at bidon wrote a whole book on the subject um a couple of years ago on breakaways our italian friends these are who do the official podcast of the giro d'italia a couple of great lines i just picked out um of the early chapters in that book in which they try to really tie down why breakaways happen in cycling leonardo piccione called it a democratic vanishing act to assert one's existence through absence um and then filippo Kautz, where well, he he went into a lot of the different definitions in different languages of breakaway specialists and we've had this before the barudeur in french this comes from the the word um the arab word baroud for gunpowder and the barudeur were the colonial soldiers in the front line who were well they were they were the guys who were blowing things up basically and that so that fits perfectly with with what the barudeur is in cycling doesn't it um Filippo also said, talked about in terms of breakaways, the eternal challenge of emancipation, the individual who defies the institution, freedom versus bureaucracy. And as almost always happens, the institution wins in the end in a confrontation that is unbalanced to begin with and becomes more unbalanced as time goes by. Very philosophical answers there. I mean, in purely sporting terms, I think of there are different types of breakaways, aren't there? I mean, yesterday on the stage of Blockhouse, there was a break that that thought it might have a chance of going to the finish. On the previous day stage around Napoli, there was a break that did go to the finish. But often, I think, well, Thursday, the soft break with, I mean, what would be the point of Gianni Savio's well, I was about drone to say, hoppers if, uh, uh, if there the weren't the soft question, breaks? answer to this question can be condensed into five syllables. Gianni Savio. But really, there's an element of controlled opposition, isn't there, in tactical terms. It's a manageable, you know, it takes the pressure and the tension and the sting out of the breakaway. It, it means that there's a formula and a pattern. The GC teams or the sprinters teams, depending on the type of day, know that there's the race pattern is set. And so everyone can relax a little bit, gives the peloton uh, an easier day, a more predictable day. Uh, that's not to say that there can't be some really stellar breaks that cause mayhem and chaos. But, I mean, without the breakaways, I mean, it's one. It's a question that until you think about it, you wouldn't think of it. We, we have to have breakaways. What's the alternative? Just all riding in a long line from start to finish every day. Ban drafting in professional cycling, <laughs> as they did in triathlon. I never, uh, at the moment, was the, did, the, there are different, codes according to the different races aren't there i think i think they've been uh, various times in the past it has been banned then it hasn't been banned and then now i think you find races where both um both rules apply i, I believe know. in triathlon sometimes they don't even have a bike they run or swim
Hey guys, uh, Pavel here. Here we are, uh, less than 24 hours before the Grande Partenza in, uh, in Budapest. Another Grand Tour for me uh, and another Grand Tour with a cycling podcast. I'll be, be sharing the ups and downs, you know, that I'll experience. This is Ineos Grenadiers rider Pavel Sivakov. We are here to, to win the race, to, to fight for the pink with Richard. He's definitely one of the main favorites here. Uh, hopefully we'll have a, a great three weeks. Um, and yeah, I'll be, I'll be also listening to the analysis of, of the guys of the cycling podcast. Um, I'm also a keen listener, so uh, yeah, always, always pretty, I find pretty cool to, to learn new things about uh, the culture, where, where we pass and um, the food and the wines, everything. So yeah, um, I'll, I'll be also tuning in. It's glorious chaos at the Giro d'Italia. The sprint is launched. Jemai on the right. Ewan on the left. Caught through the center. There goes Amatia Van der Poel as well. Van der Poel comes around. Van der Poel is down. He hits the front. There's a crash in Ewan's arm. It's Mathieu Van der Poel in pink. And that's stage one done. The Grandi Partenza from Budapest. James Knox rides for Quickstep Alpha Vinyl. Big rollout this morning. Big crowds. Yeah, to be honest, it was a pretty easy day. We just pooled along through the rolling Hungarian countryside. Not much to see, not much to do. And then, yeah, it just got more and more nervous and fast into that last 5K. There was a crash before the corner, and then again at 3K. Ballerini crashed for us, which was a bit of a shame. He was, seemed to be in a good position. Van der Poel won, as expected. I've got my fantasy team on the go. Managed to pick one, two, three today in my fantasy team, so I'm chuffed with that. We should go to the tail of the Tapa, stage two. Started again at Hero Square in uh, Pest and finished up here near to Buda Castle. And as I said, shades of Bologna 2019 with the sort of flat city time trial and then the climb at the end. And over the course of the afternoon, several leaders, of course, in the hot seat. Alex That's uh, two down already, ticking these off pretty fast. This is James Knox. Long day for a 12 and a half minute effort. Try to be smooth and fast. I'm just not very fast through the corners. I need to, I'm just a bit hopeless around the corners. Uh, was pretty happy anyway, regardless. Did a good final climb. Did a pretty decent time. Mauro obviously did a good time trial, top 10. Really good. And Yatesy won, which, yeah, that's a big statement. Head of the other GC guys, getting a win in early. Obviously, a sprint day tomorrow. First big test for us. Uh, first opportunity for Cav. There goes Michael Mirko. Mirko knows that. Trying to lynch the sprint now for Mark Cavendish. Needs all trying to follow on the wheel. Demar is there. Cavendish now launches. Cavendish going. Cavendish in front. On the right as we look at it, it's Gavinia. On the right, Gavinia, but Cavendish is still in front. Cavendish is going. Barhaus is coming to the left. The line won't get there. Cavendish still there. Cavendish still there. Oh, it's number 16. This is Ineos Grenadiers rider Pavel Sivakov. We're here. We're in Italy. Uh, after three really nice days in Hungary, actually, um, was my first time there, and I was, yeah, su- surprised a bit by, by the country. Uh, that's not the image I had of Hungary, and um, yeah, it's been three great days, three great stages, and now we can say that we'll start. Um, we'll start with a big one with Mount Etna tomorrow, first GC battle. I think we already we will see already, you know. Uh, more clearly who's in a good condition now um, and who's going to be up there for uh, for the win. Shoot.
minutes, chute à l'arrière du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. That said, PK, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by NordVPN. A VPN is a virtual private network, and it can help keep you safe when you're online, or keep your data safe, more to the point, because, especially when you're travelling around, and I'm tethered up to my phone now, but I've also been using hotel Wi-Fi and the Wi-Fi in the press room at the Giro d'Italia, I want to make sure that my data is safe and secure, especially when doing important business like logging into my bank account. Uh, I don't want to be the victim of data theft, and so the virtual private network is basically like a corridor of protection for your data. And you can grab an exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com slash TCP and use the code TCP to get a huge discount plus free threat protection and one additional month free. It's completely risk-free as well because Nord offers a 30-day money-back guarantee if you don't get on with it. So go to nordvpn.com slash TCP. Hi, Daniel and Lionel. Simon Bitterstone from Hampshire here. It's always struck me how articulately, engagingly, openly cyclists seem to be able to talk about their race and how they're going. And it's really something that I find adds to the enjoyment of the sport is being able to hear their perspectives so eloquently delivered. And it's something that's uh, struck me as in contrast to what you get in a number of other sports and dare I specifically pick on football where players come off the pitch and offer banal sound bites about taking each game as it comes and so on. I wondered if you thought there was a reason why cyclists are seemingly so much better at talking as soon as they come off the bike. Um, Or perhaps it's that you were able to pick out the cyclists that are most articulate from experience. One thing that crossed my mind is perhaps cyclists are subject less to media training and having to stick to the message as might be the case in other sports. But how that possibly may have changed over a the recent years where more money has come into the sport so a follow-up question really is is it changing do you find it more difficult to get cyclists to talk openly and to express themselves well it was a good example we've just heard of cyclists being very articulate from our diarists um they have been selected partly for how articulate they are haven't they lionel It is true, though, Simon is right, professional cyclists are an incredibly articulate bunch. Um, Richard and I sometimes used to lock horns over this. Um, He always gravitated towards the very erudite, articulate riders, where I kind of tend to like the sort of the the slightly wilder, unkempt, unreconstructed breed of professional cyclists. (laughs) Not that there are many of them around. I'm certainly not going to name any of them. Um... The, on a serious note, I would say sort of socio-demographically, professional cycling now is quite a middle-class sport and there are a lot of very educated riders. I think that applies even more to women's professional cycling. They're an incredibly well-educated bunch. Uh, that possibly doesn't explain everything. I think the historical access for journalists Um, and the business model of professional cycling. So in terms of access, um, journalists have always been able to go into hotels. They've always had very intimate contact with riders and outside of the setting of mixed zones where time is limited and a protocol has to be respected. So there's always been uh, quite extensive dialogue, I think, between riders and journalists. And that's always just something that's been... 
accepted and expected by riders coming into the sport. And as far as the business model is concerned, again, I think riders are well aware of their responsibilities to sponsors, to be articulate, to communicate readily with the media. I mean, within it has its limitations and it's always sort of within reason and within the confines of of how much the individual wants to talk to members of the press. But I think those two things, to a large extent, explain why we are so blessed by so many articulate riders. And the teams themselves have now quite sophisticated in-house media operations, don't they? A few years ago, a lot of uh, written material on the team websites. Now, they're basically videographers, a lot of the teams, aren't they? And, of course, now the Netflix documentaries coming from the Tour de France this year... Um, the riders need to be storytellers and cycling is a I, I don't want to fall for the cliche that it's a cerebral sport but there's a lot of thinking time from start to finish you know 150 to 250 kilometers worth of thinking time and each rider is seeing a very different version of the race has a very different story they will have their own thoughts about what they were th- doing at the time what was going through their mind what they were thinking about what they were taking into account I thought Joe Dombrowski's account of yesterday you know just even hearing him say that he thought he might try and hang on to the group as they caught him on the lower slopes of Blockhouse and then realizing nah that's not going to happen you know that's a sort of very simple insight but it is a really clear concisely expressed very visual insight especially when married up to the tv pictures and so you get a 3d uh, vision of the race through um, the eyes of the riders that can express what was going through their minds while they were racing yeah there's a very rich palette a rich and varied palette of stimuli in professional cycling isn't there i always talk about the cheesecake of engagement the the many miscellaneous reasons for which one might be interested in professional cycling whether you know for some people it's more about the geography other people it's more about the tech for other people it's more about physiology and all of these things are potentially their stimuli they're things to talk about things to discuss and it, it all makes a very rich cake compared to a controlled environment like a f- you know a football stadium, a swimming pool, a tennis court. Uh, when can you eat this cheesecake? Only after <laughs> eleven or only after dinner? Uh, and on the same, sort of twisting that point slightly, a very visually and aesthetic sport, isn't it? I mean, when you look at the riders, I mean, they all look absolutely you know, mint. The the clothing is put on in such a way that it looks right. The bikes all look right. Um, They're very aware of the the visual impact of of how they look and how the sport looks. Mikel Lander and his odd shoes. Well, true. Hi, Bertrand from Belgium. Uh, The Giro is maybe the most beautiful Grand Tour, but with the worst place in the calendar. Uh, Can you imagine the Giro taking the place of the Vuelta in September? or the Tour de France being delayed by a week or two? Well, Tristan Vetter had a very similar question. I mean, this is sacrilege, isn't it? Moving the Giro from May? I mean, no, I think it would work. Happen. I think it would work. We should point out that until relatively recently, the Giro did finish in the middle of June. True. I was just looking at some dates. The Giro in 1976, for example, finished on the 12th of June. 1988 finished on the 12th of June. That was that was just about the latest it would finish, sort of the second week or the end of the second week of June. But it has crept forward, hasn't it, in the calendar? And this has caused problems, as we've seen in the last few years. Also, there are problems and considerations to do with climate change, um, the snow lingering longer in the Alps on occasion. On a, in other years, it, it's hotter earlier. 
But I think a Giro in the autumn or in the late summer would work nicely in a Vuelta. Well, in the spring, we've already seen that in the past. We saw that up until 1995, didn't we? Well, of course, after lockdown, we did see an autumn Giro, didn't we? Followed by an autumn, almost winter Vuelta. I thought that worked pretty well. Um, I suppose in terms of the structure of the three Grand Tours, the, the Tour de France is the pinnacle but it doesn't come at the end. It, it's not like the whole season is building towards that point. So I just wonder, would the Giro as a sporting event suffer from being held after the Tour de France late in the season? I think it possibly would. How about three-year rotation? We they have all one s- Grand Tour. No, they all switch positions every oh, year. Interesting. So one year the Tour gets the May slot, one year it's the... I mean, I think logistically it could work. Of course, the Tour de France wouldn't relinquish its position in July because it's the only one of the Grand Tours which happens entirely within the the school holidays, the sort of recognised summer holiday. But is not the south of Italy just as hot in the late late end of August as Spain? parts of Spain not quite, not quite not quite I mean just thinking back to the kilometre zero I made a little while ago about the impact of the climate on the sport over the next 10 years perhaps not even that long you know the height of summer July afternoons at four or five o'clock or um, August afternoons at four or five o'clock it may not be sustainable from a physiological point of view to have these races held then. So there could be some real argy-bargy about uh, wanting to take different slots on the calendar. Cycling as a winter sport, maybe, in the future. All change at the top of the Giro d'Italia. All change on Mount Etna. No big GC eruption amongst the big boys. But we have a new leader, and Juan P. Lopez pulls on pink as Leonard Kemner adds a Giro d'Italia stage win for the one he took two years ago in the Tour de France. Stage four to Bora Hansgrohe. Hey guys, my name is Ben Svioff from Bora Hansgrohe. Yeah, absolutely outstanding day for us. Already three wins in the pocket this season. Lenny is an absolute machine. Yeah, beside of that, our day was super good. Uh, we could keep our GC guys out of trouble. Yeah, everything was simply perfect for us today. This is James Knox of Quick Step Alpha Vinyl. In the car now, coming back down Etna, carnage on the roads. Uh, we've had traffic jams and there you go. Sat now chipping in, trying to get us round. Obviously the first GC day, I think it went pretty well for the team. We had Maori up front, kind of had the pressure of being virtual pink. I think he was pretty disappointed. Saw him across the line after he'd done his media duties and he looked, yeah, pretty pretty shattered. Pavel Sivakov rides for Ineos Grenadiers. So far, so good, I would say. Um... Was a was a tough climb first. Obviously, first time for me up uh, up the the volcano. Uh, the two Richies, Richie Port and uh, Richard Carapaz, they they finished the job really well. Was a little bonus uh, after the stage. We had a quick trip back on the helicopter, just 15 minutes from from Etna to our hotel. The driver of the helicopter even had the time to like a quick reroute to uh, to show us the the small volcanoes, the little brothers of the the Etna. That was a really cool moment of the day. Demar launches. There's no match of on the pool at the minute. It's Demar through the centre. Demar through the centre. Arnold Demar is back. Stage five finished. Out of Sicily and into Calabria now. Well, it looked like for the start there we might get a, a free pass, a lucky day on the climb, um, but it wasn't to be. 
Alberson accelerated and made Cavs life hard. Me, Bert, Morky, Mauro and Seri all stayed with Cav. Tried to pace him up the climb as fast as we could. In the end it wasn't to be. Tomorrow looks a little bit more straightforward. And uh, yeah, hopefully he gets another chance at a sprint for the win. Anyway, it was stage six from Palmi to Scalea. As I say, we've had a couple of finishes just up the road from here in Praia Amari before. There was a sprint finish a few years ago. I remember very vividly the uphill finish that Diego Ulisi won, but today was a pure stage for the sprinters. And, I mean, what a snooze fest, really. Um, we need to... Well, what to say? Nothing Nothing happened, really. Uh, one of the slowest races I've done in a while was a really long stage, really long day on the bike, <laughs> even a long day for DSS, I guess, on the TV. It was also really boring. This is James Knox. That was, that was quite something today. We did a 160k of rolling around, followed by a 32k of uh, charging on the pedals for the sprint finish there. So, yeah, it was quite a, uh, it's quite a boring day. I'm not one to get involved in... Uh, cycling polemics but um yeah no one wanted to go on the break which it's not a great image for the sport is it our boys got chopped up a little bit there in the last few k walk off had to move up cav back onto the train and then go long also so cav kind of thought he'd be dying out and also went long and yeah it was just too much and uh very very close sprint between ewan and damar for the win i've seen a photo finish and you can't tell the difference so Candice is at the front, Candice is at the front, here comes Caleb Ewan, Caleb Ewan out of the finish, Demar's coming back, he's rapid, oh, three of them to the line! Caleb Ewan, Arnold Demar, Mark Cavendish. Judging from that picture, it's two out of two for Arnold Demar. The Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Giro d'Italia is supported by Science and Sport. Science and Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science and Sport for supporting the cycling podcast. As I've said before, the one of the main reasons that we came to the Giro d'Italia and covered the race from start to finish back in 2016 was because of the support of Science and Sport. We wouldn't have been able to do it without that support. And so we're very grateful for them that they have continued to come on this journey with us over the last few years. If you would like to get 25% off all of Science and Sport's energy drinks, gels, bars and various other products go to scienceandsport.com and use the code SISCP25 as ever we do put that discount code in the show notes and just a reminder that it doesn't work in conjunction with other offers that uh, Science and Sport are running at any particular time but uh, if you load up your basket with goodies and use SISCP25 you'll be able to get 25% off. Hi Daniel and Lionel. My name is Will, and I live in Mercersburg, Pennsylvania. Like many, I really enjoyed Stage 7, but I found myself captivated not only by the great racing, but the beautiful scenery and villages. I have uh, often been told that southern Italy is not the best for cycling or for tourism, but having been through these last few days, I was wondering your thoughts on the area that the tour has traveled inland. Is it a great place for those of us who enjoy good wine, good food and good cycling to spend some time in Italy? Will also sent a very nice message about Richard Moore, which we listened to this afternoon. And uh, thank you very much for that message, Will. And thank you to everyone who's sent us an email 
I know we've said it before, but um, it bears repeating that uh, every message has been um, very gratefully received and, and actually a really useful, helpful um, thing for us because um, hearing how much Richard meant to all of you, um, well, it's been uh, it's been really nice to see. And uh, yeah, thank you very much, Will, for your message. But as to your question about the south of Italy, I've grown to love the south of Italy. I was, if you remember, my first trip to Calabria, I was fairly nervous about being there. I mean, some of it is quite scruffy. It has to be said. There's a lot of unfinished apartment blocks and things that look like they're on the verge of falling down and some of the towns as we've said earlier in the Giro um, need you know com- well probably raising to the ground and rebuilding um, but we were in sort of two minds about southern Italy as a tourist destination or a cycling destination. Yeah I think you have to be more discerning and more selective in the south of Italy I mean over the years we've seen many highlights there have been some highlights on this Giro d'Italia. I mean, Lionel, the location we had to record in Schilla was it was on a par with anything we've experienced in the last seven or eight years. Just this absolutely gorgeous bay looking out over the Tyrrhenian Sea. However, we were talking to a colleague earlier and he asked us whether that would be a suitable holiday destination. And it would be, but one would probably want to stay in Schilla because close to there, there aren't necessarily, well, there aren't, um, places that are as easy on the eye within within easy range, whereas here, for example, we're moving up the peninsula and what well, we remarked the other day when we were driving, didn't we, Lionel, that with every sort of hour you drive north in Italy, things get a little bit more polished. Certainly until you get to the kind of midriff of Italy, things get a little bit more polished. They start to feel a little bit more like the cliched image of Italy with the cypress trees or the poplar trees and these raking views over rolling hills. Um, that said, we I mentioned uh, Shila this year. We've had some fantastic trips and fantastic stops in places like Matera. Matera is probably the most beautiful place, most extraordinary place I've seen in Italy. That's in Basilicata, right in the south. Um, most of Puglia is lovely. Lecce was fantastic a few years ago. Um, Albero Bello, the, the truly the conical hills in, in Puglia, absolutely stunning. There have been some less well-known places Lionel. Remember Civita, the Albanian colony or once Albanian colony right in Calabria. Unfortunately, in Calabria, we've tended to hug the coast. Unfortunately, I say that I'm not a massive lover of the sea generally. And I get the impression that some of the more interesting places in Calabria are inland in the mountains, but we've not really explored them that much with the Giro. So the bottom line, I think, is yes, um, southern Italy, definitely somewhere to go on holiday particularly for the sort of experienced, discerning, independent traveller who doesn't mind really putting in a lot of sort of elbow work, a lot of research to, to really unearth those hidden gems. Hi, Daniel and Lionel. Uh, my name's Michael Hogg. I'm uh, from the Buffalo's hometown of Edinburgh. And I'd like to ask a question more around the culture as you've experienced it over the years that you've covered the the Giro. Can I ask each of you what, firstly, your favourite area of Italy is and secondly, what's your favourite dish from those two areas? Very difficult one to answer. Um, I've got about six favourite regions, six favourite areas. Um, Difficult 
to overlook, well, I'm going on holiday there in a few weeks, the Sutirol, the far north east of Italy, the German-speaking part of Italy, just if you're a mountain lover. Um, it's like nowhere else in Europe. But if I had to name one region, one dish, Mike, it would probably be Umbria, somewhere like Spoleto in Umbria, and a dish from the Picial Tartufo Nero, which is kind of a fat spaghetti, um, not unlike what we had, what we've been having in Abruzzo line or the spaghetti alla chitarra but the picture round and like sort of cylindrical and the tartufonero the black truffle which you find on a lot of in a lot of the sauces around there I mean I defer to you really on what dish comes from where so I'll stick to the the regions I mean I'm a, more of a city dweller, I think, than you, Daniel, although, oddly, you've lived in London and now live in Berlin. But I think the, the best Italian cities, and, uh, I mean, I, I love a city break, but Bologna, Florence, um, fantastic places. You know, you know, Bologna especially, I thought, was very charming for the start of the 2019 Giro. Uh, Florence or Firenze, where I stayed when I went to Strada Bianca, at the start of the year, or start of March, isn't it? Um, unbeatable places, really, for a, a weekend break, especially if there's a bike race on or a football match. Um, managed to combine both when I was in Florence. Um, so I'm always quite happy, although I do love the secret Fribrancini hideaway for a rest day. Very relaxing, very restful. I also quite like being able to step out of wherever I'm staying and, and have a multitude of places to... Um, go and have a coffee or pick for lunch and stroll around, have a look at the architecture and just people watch, I guess. In terms of the food, the delight for me has been not really knowing too much. Uh, the pasta we had last night, this this flat, almost guitar string type pasta that we had, not, I'd not heard of it before. It was fantastic. Came with these small meatballs, didn't it? We'll hear perhaps a bit more about this tomorrow. Um, but the thing that I love is when they just bring you something that they think you might like. So we just had a sort of random selection of antipasti last night, didn't we? And there were some delights on that plate, some ricotta. There was a sort of omelette thing. Um, what else was there? there was a, a, a big ravioli of some kind, wasn't there? There was a donut, a savoury donut. Um, really just a joy when you trust um, the establishment and they bring you what they would like to you to enjoy. Lionel, I think I might have committed heresy. I think Pichi might be the incorrect name if you're eating that particular pasta in that particular part of Umbria that I'm talking about. I think they, um, I spent a lot of time in the south of Tuscany and they're called Pichi there, but in Umbria, I think they're called something else. They might be, they're not Bigoli, but they're the same as Bigoli. Bigoli are what you get in the Veneto. But basically, whatever region of Italy you go to, you get a long sort of cylindrical pasta, fat pasta, and it has a different name everywhere. Not not only in every region, but sometimes in every town. You move from town to town and it takes on a completely different name. But you get the idea. I thought you were going to say that you were going to advocate for pasta with the sauce just piled no, up high on the Lionel. top. Should we just get straight to the tale of the tapa and sum up what happened today? Because the stage went from Diamante to Potenza, 196 kilometres long, four and a half kilometres thereabouts high. Jeez, that was a hard day. This is James Knox of Quick Step Alpha Vinyl. All day my guts just got worse and worse. I don't think it was like anything I've eaten or anything. I was just, just too hard. 
And yeah, with like 40k to go, sat up, um, trudged along a bit on my own, and on that second to the last big climb, I'd stop halfway up there, climb over a fence, pull my chamois down and do my business, which was a bit grim, but I was on my own, thankfully, no one around. Pulled my shorts back up, got on with it, finished the ride, feeling pretty terrible. That's my day. Up there in second place, it's the battle of the Dutch here at the Giro d'Italia. Formula down in third, he's beaten, he's battled, but he can't do it. It's Kuhn Bolman who's going to take a grand tour stage win for the first time in his career. Ben Zwiehoff rides for Bora Hansgrohe. Yeah, today was really epic day. We went almost the whole day full gas. And yeah, the contrast is pretty crazy. Yesterday was one of the easiest days in the office and today was maybe one of the hardest. That's the crazy thing in cycling, that you can have this and you can have that. Dear listeners of Cycling Podcast, this is Ineos Grenadiers rider Pavel Sivakov. Another little diary to come in, uh, stage seven. A stage that uh, I guess I guess a lot of riders have been scared of. Um, sadly, we we had Castro who crashed pretty, pretty hard in the, in the first part of the race. That was hard to see. I saw him laying there in, um, on the ground next to the barrier. I uh, saw his face. Uh, didn't look good. Um, uh, hopefully, hopefully he can get through it. Then we'll be up to um, to a nasty circuit in Napoli. Uh, I think, uh, in my opinion, a breakaway can can go to the finish. We'll see. But Thomas again stays at the front. Thomas again sees the line. Thomas d'Italia. Again, bookends a dream decade of breakaway racing. Final ball sets up. Kirmai with yet another top five. But the day belongs to Thomas again in sensational style. That's stage eight. Done. Napoli to Napoli. Pretty hectic, chaotic circuits there. Kavna had a go in the final. Pink jersey had to close him down. Behind... Cav was safe and sound. Napoli was lovely. It's my first time here. Big crowds. Didn't have pizza. No, you need a pizza. We didn't get any pizza. A van got smashed into last night, so it was a proper Napoli experience all round, really. Um, nothing was nothing was taken, or there was no proper issues, and it got sorted today. Another day at the Giro. Big day tomorrow. Blockhouse. Um, we've been debating it, but we don't know any answer. So if anyone can tell us, why is Blockhaus called Blockhaus? It sounds real German for the fact it's in a Brutto. Um, this has been a bit of a pondering question. Or a hand scroll with a couple of riders. Oh, my word! Back goes Simon Yates. It's not just Chicorne who's struggling. And Simon Yates, the best placed of all of the general classification contenders, needs to get it under control here very quickly, or his Giro d'Italia is quite simply over. James Knox rides for Quick Step Alpha Vinyl. Second rest day. Made it. Poor Michelle. Oh, I'm broken. Um, big day. Managed to jump in the break. Um, then I uh, had a bit of a howler and came out like a little descent in the town and then a steep right and dropped it into my 36 in the front. But um, yeah, it dropped down pretty hard. I got sent into crash mode, which for those who don't know is like a automatic setting on the DI2 for protecting the derailleur and you can't, it doesn't let you change the gears. So yeah, I was sort of stuck in the middle of my cassette, grinding when I was already suffering, going backwards, getting frustrated. And then from there, yeah, just had to uh, 
get round. But Blockhouse was horrible. I really hated every moment of it. Oh, and uh, in the Grippel, smartest man in the in the in the whole peloton here, Joss Van Endem, gave me a good rundown of why it's called Blockhouse. He said Habsburg dynasty, that empire um, built some fortresses on the Blockhouse or whatever it was called prior to that. Apparently, it was also used in World War II. I mean, this is just me running off what Van Anden told me. Like, I'm not going to pretend I know what I'm talking about. And yeah, the name stuck, so there you go. That's why it sounds German, it's because it is German. Should have seen that one come in. Uphill we go to the line. Hindley going for it. Ponsalbiva behind him, looking to try and come off the wheel. Is that to be the story? But here comes Canapaz. Richard Canapaz trying to catch Hindley. Balde moves to the left. Three coming to the line here. Oh, it's a photo finish in the mountains almost. Hindley puts his arm in the air and it looks as though the Aussies done it. Hi, Lionel and Daniel. Andy from St Albans here. First of all, I just wanted to say what a great job um, both of you are doing under very difficult circumstances. It's lovely to hear both of you and also the beautiful moments from the Giro del Buffalo. It really is comforting to hear Richard's voice and to know his spirit is still very much amongst us. My question relates to the TV coverage and in particular how difficult it could be to identify uh, different riders. I watch a lot of cycling and still find it difficult to immediately pick out more than a dozen or 15 riders in the field. Today in the select groups of 8 or 10 going up the blockhouse, I was having to work out who I knew. They pieced together some of the remaining riders. I guess it's a factor of the number of riders, the number of teams, and the teams changing names, sponsors and kit from season to season, and riders moving between teams, and even the different riders from each team for, for all the grand tours, etc. I know the complexity is part of the appeal, but I wonder if the commentators and TV graphics could do a better job. The numbers uh, on the rider's kit are also not immediately visible from the front-on shots, which doesn't help. Well, a question from Andy there, who lives very near me. He's in St Albans, and I agree. Yeah, it is difficult to pick out the riders, especially when some of the kits are quite similar. I've been confusing Aeolo and Astana during this Giro. Quite difficult to pick them apart. Uh, Jumbo Visma, as you say, have the riders' first names on the helmets, don't they? Which is something. Back in the day, teams have had riders' names on the jerseys. I think Quickstep did it for a while. Mappe did, did it for a while. I think Onse may have done it for a while, perhaps. Maybe they... Um, and certainly uh, Team Sky, Ineos have, have done a variation on it. But I think that... And this isn't my idea... Uh, or a particularly original one, but I think that the World Tour could have some kind of squad numbering system. We have 30 riders in a squad, and each team has to assign a number to their riders, and they could choose how to number them uh, according to their own whims, alphabetically if they wish, or they could make number one the team's star and leader, or uh, numbers could mean something specific. You know, somebody could pick their birthday, or uh, they don't even have to limit the numbers to one to 30. Riders, teams could retire their numbers, you know, in honour of great champions, um, or, you know, in tragic circumstances, you know, Astana could have retired uh, Michele Scarponi's number as a mark of respect. You could have... You know, I don't know, number 99 for Jumbo Visma was Tom de Moulin. Who's going to inherit the, you know, the, the, the poison chalice of the Jumbo Visma number 99? I think there's a lot of uh, scope for sort of interest. And it would certainly make it a lot easier if the riders then wore that number prominently, both on the back and the front of their kit somewhere so that they could be seen from a distance. I know the jerseys have got to be designed to take into account all the various sponsors' logos and what have you. Um, but 
it's pretty critical to the viewer's experience being able to see who's in the break really quickly, not have to wait for the TV director to go through the start list and put the caption up on the screen. And while I'm on that, the captions are never on the screen long enough. They scroll around too quickly, so you, you're struggling. If there's, a 30 rider group, <laughs> if there's a 30 rider group and I'm there going, oh, Dombrowski's in there, oh, hang on, who was that? Oh, no, hang on. Where's the remote control? Um, Lionel, what about personalised helmets? Personalised helmet designs. We've seen this before. There were mm. a couple of there were there was a phase where the Italian stars and Stefano Garzelli's. There's a gentleman in Italy that does these custom designs. But if everyone in the peloton have to ha- had to have a custom design. Um, you would get to know them. You would learn them over the years. Oh, That's I mean, there'd one be a, solution. There'd be a thousand custom design. Yeah, helmets. but they'd be more easily visible. Even a, a name on the back of the shirt or a number, I think, would be quite difficult to pick out from what, the helicopter. What would these custom designs be? I mean, animals, flags. I mean, you know, riders squabbling over who gets to have the lobster on their helmet. I don't know. Or yeah, yeah. Um, what is, who did we have the other day? Um, Galliani, not Galliani. Galliani's the guy who used to decide who AC Milan was signing in the summer. Um, Tagliani. Tagliani, the trout. The trout. The trout yeah, of Gavardo. Um, yeah, that's one possibility. We talked earlier about the late 90s. Well, that was my, that was the, the golden years as far as I was concerned. All caveats obviously apply, given what we've learned subsequently about the late 90s. However, if you do go back and watch cycling in the late 90s, they were the last years in which due to tragic circumstances and Andrei Kivalev dying in 2003 helmets were made compulsory so if you look back on look back at races in the 90s you get a lot of riders who were wearing cotton caps no headwear at all a lot of them didn't wear sunglasses and it's amazing what a difference that makes in terms of being able to engage with riders and sort of and riders resonating really their faces resonating um, their personalities almost being conveyed by their facial expressions on the bike. Unfortunately, well, fortunately in some respects, but unfortunately in others, those days will not return. I don't think I can't envisage a day at any point when we will not have compulsory helmets in the world tour. Hi guys, it's Brad here from Australia, currently in Italy enjoying the Giro. On the way over, I finished reading Slaying the Badger that Richard very nicely signed for me when I purchased a copy from him. And in there, he was referring to what he thought might be the best tour. And it got me thinking what you guys might think was the best Giro. The likes of Bartoli, Copy, Merckx, Hino, or in more recent times, Nibali, Dumoulin, Froome, Bernal. All those winners, obviously, different races at different times, but wondering whether you guys had a thought on what has been the best or most interesting Giro, I guess. Happy Monday, uh, Cycling Podcast team. This is George from Glasgow. Uh, My question for your press conference today is this. If you had access to a time machine and could be transported back in time or indeed forward into the future, which particular Grand Tour would you choose to cover? Well, Daniel, best Giro of all time. And if you had a time machine, which Grand Tour would you choose to cover? Best Giro of all time. I've talked about this before and I talked about it earlier in the episode. The 1998 Giro d'Italia, for me, that was the first one I watched really from start to finish. It was a, It's famous as being an epic battle between Pavel Tonkov, my favourite rider of all time, and Marco Pantani. I mean, yesterday, Lionel, we were up on Blockhouse and we both remarked on the sparse crowds. We felt the... And we, we do feel 
year by year almost, Italy is not falling out of love with professional cycling, but it's really waiting without knowing that it's waiting for the next big Italian star to emerge. And it all feels a very, very long time ago that Marco Pantani was the biggest sports star outside football, certainly in Italy. And, you know, the fervour that used to accompany him, I went to a stage as a spectator, I remember in 1999 in Treviso, and it was, I mean, I mentioned the other day when we were in Naples, the scenes when Maradona signed for Napoli and people sort of, you know, crawling over cars and, and you know, piled up on top of each other just craning to get a glimpse of Maradona and that was what it was like when Marco Pantani went around Italy with the Giro d'Italia it was extraordinary and in that 1998 Giro d'Italia well he hadn't done his double yet his Giro Tour double but he was on the way to completing the first half of that and you really got a sense even through the TV screen even watching in the UK on Eurosport that something special something big something um, euphoric as far as Italy was happening and um, it was it was mesmerizing and this there was this battle day after day it seemed like days and days on end of of Tonkov and Pantani just going wheel to wheel on these climbs whose names at the time were very, very exotic for me, very exciting. You know, I didn't necessarily know exactly where they were in Italy or in the, in the mountains in Italy. And they're names that still, you know, when I hear them now, places like Monte Campione, Alpe di Pampeago, they still have a special kind of reverberation in my head and in my heart and in my affections when I hear them now. Interesting. I mean, I'm going to go back even further than that to a Giro that I didn't see anything of at the time. The 1987 race that Stephen Roach won, uh, he was locked in this battle with his Carrera teammate, uh, Roberto Vicentini, who had won the Giro the previous year and was kind of the, the golden boy of the team, the golden boy of Italian cycling. Richard actually made an, an excellent episode of Kilometre Zero about Stephen Roach's Giro win a few years ago. Um, but the reason that it resonates for me is because, again, it was that era where I was falling in love with cycling. I was hoovering up as much information as possible. And I followed that just through the newspapers. And some days uh, the newspaper we got at home might have a single leg column of copy with maybe 200 words telling telling us what had happened in Italy. Um, some days they might only just print the result and you'd see that Roach had yeah, lost. I remember that with the, even in 1998 with Tonkov and Gotti. I would say one day, or oh, in 1997, Gotti was first one day, Tonkov second the next, and then it was reversed and it was incredible. Yeah. Um, and then getting Cycling Weekly and, uh, you know, putting a bit of meat on the skeleton and then finally getting um, Winning Magazine and seeing some colour photographs from this race and just seeing the vividness of the pink jersey and the, the anger on the faces of the crowd who really didn't want Roach to beat their boy and the white of the snow in the mountains. And, and I guess kind of realising that this race was held in a point in the year where the spring straddled summer you know some of the pictures look glorious bright sunshine but then equally the next day the weather could be terrible and it was just mind-blowing just to see that the Giro d'Italia was not an Italian version of the Tour de France at all and so that was the kind of gateway into learning a bit more about professional cycling and I always try to remind myself Lionel and we've probably had this conversation over the years that after a stage that may seem humdrum to us yesterday wasn't a humdrum stage it was a really exciting stage but it was a mountain stage that didn't particularly stand out won't particularly stand out in our memory for one teenager or probably many teenagers watching that will it will take on the same significance it will take on the same resonance as those 
Jerry did for us. The host of the Cycling Podcast 2027, 2037, uh, Jiro Vagando was probably watching awestruck yesterday. <laughs> what about if you had a time machine, uh, which Grand Tour would you choose to cover? I think we talked in our Giro quite a lot, didn't we, about the Giro della Rinascita, the first Giro after the Second World War. And I think it would be... It's, it's hard to come up with anything more compelling than that, the battle between Coppi and Bartali. Um, but there are many. and I, I mean, that's probably my second choice I would probably go back and cover the 1998 Giro it will remain my favourite Grand Tour it's it has its own special sacred place and remains untouchable for me hey Lionel Daniel it's Alad here from Oxford long time listener and good friend of the podcast just wanted to thank you and the team for the Giro Vagando it's been so good having the daily podcast and you taking us along with the journey my question relates to Tom de Milan and his comment when he lost time in the first week and then when he said in a downbeat kind of way, he didn't have the legs. We hear this phrase all the time and seemingly to describe a mysterious lack of form on the day. And then a few days later, we saw Tom blitz it up to Potenza, towing Bowman along, his legs seemingly super strong. So my question is, do you guys think it's the legs or the head that the riders are really talking about? Uh, hi, Daniel, uh, Lionel and Cycling Podcast team. Thanks for wonderful coverage of the 2022 Giro. Um, loving the Giro de Buffalo, uh, especially the coverage of Stage 7 um, and all you're doing. Um, my name's Ian, I'm from Bristol, and my question relates to Tom Dumoulin, who was just wonderful seeing back in brilliant action. And my question really relates to his future. Um, and I was thinking about him and Richie Port and you know, if you were Tom Dumoulin's dad, would you advise him in the future to stick where he is with uh, Yamba Visma and develop into a sort of super domestic role? Or do you think he should uh, move on and try and rekindle that uh, ability to win Grand Tours that he clearly has? Thanks so much, guys. Um, and we're all still incredibly saddened by Richard's uh, passing. Some interesting questions about Tom de Moulin there from Alid and Ian. Is it the legs or the head, do you think? And what does his future hold? Well, I saw him striding across a hotel lobby about an hour and a half ago um, when we were in Monte Silvano. I should have asked him, shouldn't I? What does your future hold, Tom? What would you answer to that, Lionel? What does my future yes. hold? Goodness me. This would be where I'd be <laughs> looking at the press officer it's... and getting him to do the wind it up symbol. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea at the moment. Uh, um... What does the future hold for Tom Dumoulin? What should he do? Well, we can't possibly know what goes on in his head. As Jos van Emden, his teammate, said to us the other day, a lot goes on in the head of Tom Dumoulin. And I think one thing with him, it's probably naive, and I'm not suggesting that anyone does this, but there is a tendency when Tom Dumoulin, well, when a rider comes back after a break like Tom Dumoulin had last year, and then he gives a very upbeat interview in which he talks about how he's changed his way of viewing cycling and now he knows why he's in it. I think it would be naive to think that any doubts that he had previously had and any difficulties that he had previously had with the life of a professional cyclist that they have suddenly been resolved and and all the circles have been squared and he he does as he say know exactly why he's in cycling and will never 
uh, and waver again. I think that's probably unrealistic. I think whatever... I think some of the reservations that he had two years ago are probably still there to a certain degree. Um, I think he's in a a good place in terms of the team he's in. I, I see this as being a good role for him. Okay, he's in a, a Jumbo Visma team where he's still a big name, he's still a, a star, there's still a lot of scrutiny, a lot of attention, but he's not their Tour de France leader. I don't think he's going to be their Tour de France le- leader at any point soon um well he's not even their Giro d'Italia GC leader this moment in time and I I think well for the rest of this race he's gonna have a lot of freedom um whether we'll ever see him contend for a a grand tour again I'm not sure I I don't know whether I said earlier in the Giro but it does feel a little bit as though cycling has moved beyond his generation I mean he's in his early 30s now he hasn't got that much longer left but he's certainly a talented enough rider to win big races still i mean going back to grand tours and and memorable grand tours the his giro d'italia 2017 i mean we've played the clip many times before of his fans the the dutch fans there the tommy dumoulin song and well, we talked earlier in the car didn't we Lionel, about the weather that year it was a fantastic year we went to some wonderful places that year it was a gorgeous route gorgeous weather and that that would be one of my favorite and Giri was the first one that I'd, well, I I did the whole thing for the cycling podcast the previous year. I'd been waylaid chopping up Rob Hatch's mattress when we were moving out, <laughs> as discussed a few days ago. But um, 2017, of the recent vintages, it was a great battle between Quintana. There was a bit of beef as well. We don't get much of that these days. Everyone's very nice. They all play very nicely together. There was Nibali sort of firing broadsides at Dumoulin and Dumoulin at Nibali and Quintana and it, it had I don't know if it had everything that Julie had but it had a lot of the essential ingredients for a really cracking vintage yeah just on de Moulin and the point about how he lost all that time on Etna and then was in the break looking good on the stage on Friday I mean yes he was looking good and he did a fantastic job in the end for his teammate Kuhn Bauman but he did get dropped uh, you know, he was in difficulty. It wasn't like it was Tom de Moulin of Giro winning vintage by any stretch. I do also think it's difficult for the Dutch riders because they are in this small, very intense goldfish bowl, aren't they? We see it every day. You know, Tom de Moulin can finish 56 on the stage and the Dutch TV crew will still go and surround him at the, the finish uh, and the Dutch reporters on the race. And there are a few of them. Um not to say that that's uh, you know the, the fault of the journalists at all, but it means that he is in the spotlight more or less every day he races. And there are these rumours that uh, Team Bike Exchange might be uh, a suitable destination for him. There's obviously the link with Giant Bikes um, that would make that a, a logical move. Um, but what, in what capacity? We remain to be uh, well. We remain to see what capacity, because, like you say, Daniel, um, there's a bit of a gap between Tom de Moulin of sort of 2016-17 vintage and uh, the Tom de Moulin we're seeing today. I must say, when you go back and watch the 2017 Giro, and particularly that day when, well, we had the infamous problem, which I don't like discussing in too graphic detail, on the Stelvio, you, you forget. Well, how brilliantly he climbed in that race, and particularly on that stage, um, how the way he came back into contention that day without too much help from his team. I mean, it was a, a very young, in some ways quite inexperienced, some web team, and it was a hell of a 
Giro victory that to pull off um, in those circumstances. Indeed. Well, I think the press officer is just, uh, you know, doing the that's it hand signal. So the sort of guillotine gesture. The guillotine gesture. Yeah, that's it. No more questions. Um, we've run out of time. And the race was used tomorrow. in the direction of the jacuzzi. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, it's very important that the cycling podcast recovers for stage 10 with an hour in the jacuzzi. Are you going to go in? I don't think I will. I'm not sure. I'm going to go for a run first, Lionel. And then I might, I might, yeah, indulge. And then we've got another podcast to record. We have indeed. Another two possibly today. Wow, one and a half really on the same subject. More on that at a later point. But the Giro d'Italia resumes tomorrow. We'll be joined also by Brian Nygaard on Wednesday night. Brian, we haven't even tasted the wine from... Well, we didn't, that's actually a lie. We did taste the wine from this property, but not on the property. We ordered it last night in the restaurant, didn't we? Um, a few kilometres away. Indeed. Well, until tomorrow, Daniel, thank you very much. Thank you, Lionel. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed and Lionel Byrne. Yeah.